to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Michael Glennon, Professor of Constitutional and International Law at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Michael, welcome to the show. John, thank you for having me on. In 2015, you published a book, National Security and Double Government, about the relationship between elected officials and the national security state. Quite a bit has happened since then, much of it with direct implications for your thesis. And there continue to be developments to this very day that reflect the dynamics that you laid out. So to begin, I'll just ask you to explain for us the basic thesis of national security and double government. Yes. Well, John, thank you again for having me on. Uh, the, the basic thesis is, is fairly simple, and it's uh, taken from the uh, great work on the English Constitution by Walter Badgett, in which he theorizes that there are two sets of institutions in the British government, uh, the so-called dignified institutions that are the front pieces and the efficient institutions that actually run the government, the prime minister, the cabinet, and elements in the House of Commons. My theory in, in uh, national security and double government was that the United States has drifted into a system rather similar to the one that Badgett described in the realm of national security since the Truman administration. And over this 70-year period, the United States has, in effect, developed a set of front institutions, which I call the Madisonian institutions, Congress, the presidency, and the judiciary, that the American people believe define and manage American national security, whereas in reality, that policy is managed by a group of uh, officials from the intelligence, defense, law enforcement, and diplomatic departments and bureaus of our government, uh, several hundred people who, in effect, uh, make national security policy behind the scenes. And this, this concealed network, which I refer to as the Trumanite network in the book, or the security managers, um, operate at a remove from uh, constitutional accountability. And indeed, unlike the British government, which Badgett suggested had moved from a monarchy to a concealed republic through this bifurcated system, the United States has moved in the opposite direction in the realm of national security. The United States has moved gradually towards autocracy with the security managers year by year becoming less constitutionally accountable and the Madisonian institutions becoming more and more ceremonial. Now, it's, it's more complicated than that, but that's, that's essentially the gist of it. And if you, if you examine the actors within the system, you can see how the system works day to day. Uh, look, for example, at the Congress. The Congress has, has uh, in the words of the 9-11 Commission, congressional oversight has become dysfunctional. It's more 
It's more hindsight than oversight. In the realm of national security, Congress knew very little and probably cared less about a vast array of activities from black site prisons to torture to mass surveillance. And uh, the courts, for their part, developed a elaborate system of jurisprudence to avoid deciding cases on the merits. The political question doctrine, the standing doctrine, mootness, ripeness. And the consequence was that vast stretches of the Constitution went for all practical purposes unenforced by the courts and the limitations on the uh, security managers became largely uh, paper barriers. Now, the president himself during this period um, had every incentive to defer to the security manager's judgment. And the consequence of this was that even when you had a president such as Barack Obama, who campaigned on the slogan of change we can believe in, national security policy remained strangely continuous from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. All the earlier administration's policies on drone strikes, troop deployments, mass surveillance, covert action, whistleblower prosecutions, claiming the state action or, or state uh, secrets privilege in court, lots of other matters, remained strangely the same from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. And this was, this was, this was kind of summarized by Barack Obama in a comment that he made to his staff, the CIA gets what it wants. Well, that applied not only to the CIA, but NSA and the, largely the Pentagon, the other security services as well. The NSA was tapping Angela Merkel's phone. Obama was said not to know anything about it. John Kerry, the Secretary of State, explained, well, some of these programs are just on automatic pilot. That pretty well explains it. These programs tend to be on automatic pilot. They're run by the security managers and the Madisonian institutions perform, as I say, a ceremonial role. Look at the security managers. For their part, they understandably resist um, kibitzing by generalists in Congress and the executive branch and the courts who know far less about these often very technical subjects than I do. And the result is that the, uh, there's been a massive, massive transfer of power from the Madisonian institutions to the security bureaucracy over the last 70 years. And the bureaucracy has turned into a, a real behemoth. There are over 1,200 government organizations working with around 2,000 private businesses and over 10,000 locations around the world, annual budget about $1 trillion. And this is, this is driven not by uh, some vast conspiracy. It, it's not a, a deep state in, in the sense that it's the result of, of some nefarious plot. No, it's the result of, of an incentive structure that has been, that is deeply embedded within 
the structure of our government in which, as I say, members of the Madisonian institutions really don't want to make many of these decisions because, among other things, uh, not only do they lack the expertise, they think, but if you make a mistake on an issue of a third rail national security question of war and peace, that's a career imperiling decision. Better to let the experts make it. And as I say, on the other hand, the other end of the process, the people in the national security bureaucracy are more than happy to fill the vacuum. So the result is that this symbiosis has played out behind closed doors and uh, people believed in this myth system that was effectively uh, put in place, not always intentionally by the Madisonian institutions that they were in charge and all was right with the world, whereas in fact, we were living in uh, a nation in which the decisions were made largely, not entirely, but largely by a concealed group of security managers. You referred to uh, a myth system there, and uh, in an article in 2018, you referenced Yuval Noah Harari's uh, well-known book, Sapiens, and the idea that he talks about in their um, so-called imagined orders. Can you expand on that idea and how, how uh, you kind of use that in your thesis? Yes, it's, it's, a, it, it's an extremely interesting book, and uh, I found it uh, on point because he, he suggests that uh, large-scale cooperation is dependent upon the existence of an imagined order, as you say, which in turn rests on a myth system. And he takes uh, the uh, Code of Hammurabi as an example, or uh, the idea of Peugeot, Massachusetts, uh, human rights. These abstractions all work, he suggests, because large numbers of people believe in the myths that are behind these ideas. Taxes are raised, armies, wars are fought because of the widespread underlying belief in a myth system. And you can see this today in our society. What is it that causes, for example, uh, opinions of the Supreme Court to be respected? Well, the what does the court have about half a dozen um, police officers working for it in its in its security protection system? Uh, but the the, the court uh, is obeyed by law enforcement personnel, by the military. President Truman seized the seal mills. Uh, had the army run the steel mills, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. It's beyond your constitutional authority. Truman stopped. What is the, quote, enforcement mechanism? Well, it's it's a myth system. And I think Harari is, is really onto something here. It makes large-scale cooperation possible. But the important thing is, of course, that there be no obvious discrepancy between 
reality and the prevailing myth system. And the result, as Harari, I think, correctly points out, is that you've got to engage in constant efforts to shore up that myth system to make sure that people don't see behind the curtain. Because if people conclude that this is all just make-believe, um, the whole thing falls to earth. Some scholars have referred to this, and Harari's not the only person by any means to talk about imagined communities. Um, mm -hmm. Some scholars have referred to this as the Tinkerbell effect. Tinkerbell only flies or exists, is alive, if you believe in Tinkerbell. And the moment you stop believing, Tinkerbell herself falls to earth and dies. So speaking of uh, pulling back the curtain, you've also written that in many ways Trump's presidency triggered, quote, an epic collapse in the image of public harmony. Explain that a bit. Well, it goes back to the point that both Badgett made in his analysis of the English Constitution and Harari, and that is when the discrepancy between reality and the myth system becomes too great, the myth system is discarded. And Badgett said very similarly that it's, it's critically important, Badgett said, for the, the two sets of institutions the so-called dignified institutions and the efficient institutions in English jurisprudence or in American jurisprudence, the, the Madisonian institutions and the security managers, it's, it's, it's crucial that those two sets of institutions always remain on the same page. They always have to project an image of harmony. It has to appear to the public that the dignified institutions, the Madisonian institutions, are in charge. Whenever disagreement exists, that threatens the viability of the whole structures. As Badgett said, uh, it's, it's rather like a spinning top. And if uh, a break, a public rift appears between the dignified institutions and the efficient institutions, the whole thing falls to earth. That's Badgett's point. So you asked about the Trump presidency. What was the epic rift that occurred? Well, the, the Trump administration split openly with the security managers. I had thought that would never happen for the same reason that Badgett believed it would not happen. Namely, uh, the whole system falls to earth. It, it induces massive instability. The whole system depends upon these two sets of institutions being on the same page. But there was a, a complete collapse in the image of public harmony during the Trump administration. So, you know, set aside who was at fault or who who, who started it, um, the president and the managers of the security bureaucracy engaged in open warfare in the, in the press and on television. The president uh, tweeted that the former FBI director is an untruthful slimeball. He compared the CIA to Nazis. 
uh, described its former league leaders as hacks, um, disparaged the generals, uh, and the security managers and their alumni responded with a counter barrage of name calling and leaks. Uh, in one story, the Washington Post cited nine senior intelligence officials as their sources. The New York Times cited four in another. And you, you, you saw the, the pro probably the, the most vivid manifestation of that in, in something that I didn't discuss in that article, but that's been in the news headlines over the last few days, the Hunter Biden letter that was signed by 51 leaders of the intelligence community, the security managers, uh, who said that the whole story about uh, Hunter Biden's business dealings in Russia and Ukraine was consistent with Russian propaganda. It was likely disinformation. So as a consequence of that, the press ignored the story. Uh, Biden, when he was asked about it in the presidential debate, cited it as pretty much an authoritative defining of the uh, finding of the intelligence community and of course last week the new york times and today the washington post confirmed the fact that the emails did come from hunter biden's laptop well the intelligence community the, these 51 security managers may have swung the election because in the three states in which the vote was closest 50,000 or so votes would have changed the margin and thrown the election into the House of Representatives because the Electoral College would have tied. So uh, this is an example of what I'm talking about. The whole, the whole system destabilizes once the uh, security bureaucracy comes out into the open. Let me just add one more theoretical dimension to this. Why is that destabilizing? I don't think I get into this in the article, but it's important. You look back over the system of double government that was uh, so predictable over the initial 70 years. And I think one of the reasons is that the security bureaucracy was regarded as legitimate, and they were legitimate because they derived legitimacy from the electoral connection. They derived legitimacy through the presidency. Once that link to the, the, the White House was broken, they lost legitimacy. People don't follow them simply because there are experts. We've got experts coming out our ears in this country. They obey the security community, the security managers, because they govern with the Madisonian institutions, with the consent of the people. And their legitimacy, therefore, was undermined as a consequence of that break. And they were, therefore, incentivized to generate their own freestanding legitimacy as political actors appealing to supportive constituencies. And that's what we see today, and that's what we saw at the end of the Trump administration. They sided openly with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And I think that's still, to jump way ahead, 
pretty much where we are today. In any event, the, the, the central point is that once, the, once the, the image of public harmony was broken, the whole system destabilizes and uh, American policy becomes unpredictable. Some people think that our constitutional system, our, our system of government, is self-correcting, often in reference to um, you know, checks and balances. If one branch overreaches, it will receive some kind of pushback from the others and things will reach uh, an equilibrium again. Uh, is this how you see it? No, I think that's a mistaken view. I know a lot of people believe that, and I think the belief comes from the widely recognized intention of the framers to set ambition against ambition. The idea was that by setting up a system of separation of powers and checks and balances and federalism, that the system would equilibrate, that you'd achieve a kind of balance through offsetting ambitions in the Congress versus the presidency, the presidency versus the courts, the federal government versus the states. Obviously, there's some logic in that, and it, it works up to a point, but it's only half the picture. The other half of the picture could be summarized with the phrase civic virtue. Nobody at the Constitutional Convention thought that that equilibrium would be achieved absent civic virtue. Civic virtue had to exist, they believed, on two different levels. One, in electing officials, you had to have a virtuous body politic, which is to say an electorate that was intelligent and informed and was able to spot solid, sound leadership that was uh, intent on advancing the common interest. At the second level, civic virtue was required on the part of those who were elected. They had to base their decisions not on their own political advancement, let alone their wealth, uh, but on the public interest, on on the national interest, what was what was good for the country. And this was obviously this is widely realized. John Kennedy's book, Profiles and Courage, is about a group of senators who sacrificed their own political careers for the public interest, for the national good. Well, um, this is what is required to make this form of government that we have work. It doesn't survive because it's self-correcting. That's part of the picture. But an equally important part is that it has to have an electorate and public officials who are committed to the public interest. Uh, one of the common things that we had to face in the Trump era, but it wasn't unique to the Trump years, is this idea that national security officials are an appropriate check on elected officials. Um, this is in reference to sort of adults in the room or slow walking um, 
the president's orders. Uh, but even in a, a more normal presidency, you kind of see this uh, norm almost of national security officials acting as a check and guiding elected officials. Uh, how do you understand that? Well, I think you've you've characterized it correctly. I think that during the Trump administration, a lot of people looked to the security managers as kind of wise, all-seeing guardians of the guardians who, who you know, were charged with, uh, in effect, commandeering the ship of state when some uh, unsteady hands got their got their uh, paws on the tiller, uh, and the captain or crew was about to sail it into the into the shallows. So, a lot of people saw the bureaucracy as one of those checks in our system of checks and balances that was intended to uh, keep government on the right track. This is, of course, a, a complete myth. Um, there was no bureaucracy at the time of the founding. The framers didn't anticipate the rise of a massive bureaucracy. Uh, when Thomas Jefferson moved into the White House, there were only a couple hundred individuals in the federal bureaucracy in Washington. His White House staff consisted of one person, his private secretary. Uh, no, they didn't set up the bureaucracy as a check on Congress and the presidency and the courts. Quite the opposite. The constitutional scheme that they designed in Philadelphia was uh, one in which the bureaucracy would derive its power from the Madisonian institutions. Uh, they wouldn't delegate power to the Madisonian institutions. That would be a complete inversion of the constitutional scheme. The bureaucracy was never intended to be a co-equal of the constitutionally established, the three constitutionally established branches of the government. And yet, as I say, during the Trump administration, as you pointed out, a lot of people uh, believed that the bureaucracy was a perfectly legitimate constitutional check on the White House. Uh, Michael Morell, a former acting head of the CIA, uh, talked about the need for the president's advisors to properly manage the president, his word. The, even Chuck Schumer, the, the Senate minority leader at the time, he said, you, you take on the intelligence community, they have six ways from Sunday at getting back at you. The point being that that was a the intelligence community was a legitimate check on the White House. Bill Kristol said he'd prefer the deep state to the Trump state as though the deep state was constitutionally ordained. Uh, and could substitute itself for the elected representatives of, of the people. Well, of course, that's complete nonsense. No, the, the security bureaucracy is not a check on the elected representatives of the people. It's supposed to be a servant of the elected representatives of the people, not their master. You write that it's instructive in this case to recall the findings of the church committee. Uh, remind us what the church committee was and what it found and what that should remind us about the national security community. 
Yes, it, it, that's a, a very important point, and it's one that's lost on on many people who who didn't live through the church committee's investigation and really don't know what the church committee was or did or what occurred in the 1970s, and that's particularly true among students today. You know, this is a, a period in American history that's not covered very well in history courses, but it's it's critically important, as I say, because it goes to the question of who are these security managers that are now embraced as the allies of those who wish to resist um, malign presidents or illiberal presidents. And the the lesson that we learned during the 1970s in the congressional investigations, the Pike Committee also looked into these activities, is worth recalling. Seymour Hersh, the famous New York Times investigative reporter, had a like a six-column banner headline story in the New York Times uh, in December of, I think, 1974, describing a CIA uh, program in which the agency was involved in domestic spying, Operation Chaos. And in response to that, the Senate established a select committee on intelligence to look into these allegations and make recommendations on reform to make sure this kind of thing stopped and didn't happen again. And the person who was uh, appointed to chair the committee was the senator from Idaho named Frank Church, who was a rising star in the Democratic Party. He had given the given the keynote address in the 1960 uh Democratic convention, and he uh, he had been elected to the Senate at age thirty. He was he was a, a dynamic guy and respected by his colleagues. And I should add, I full disclosure, I worked for Church. He was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when I was the legal counsel to the committee in the nineteen seventies, and he was very respected by his colleagues and by the staff, as I as I say. So, in the course of this uh, very thorough investigation, the committee looked into these allegations, and it found that it wasn't simply the the CIA that was involved in these sorts of activities. The FBI was as well. They ran a program called COINTELPRO, which was aimed at exposing and disrupting the activities of thousands of individuals and groups of people who were protesting the Vietnam War, campaigning for civil rights. They were engaged in constitutionally protected activities. The FBI, as part of COINTELPRO, mailed hundreds of anonymous letters to civil rights leaders and anti-war activists. One of those letters was sent to Martin Luther King, and the idea was to drive him to commit suicide. 
the CIA, as I say, was involved in something called Operation Chaos. Uh, it's a domestic spying program, an Operation Lingual, in which the CIA illegally opened and read thousands of international letters every year to and from American citizens. The National Security Agency, the committee also looked at, it, it ran a program called Operation Minaret that had placed 1,500 individuals, American citizens, on a watch list and listened in on their telephone conversations with no court warrants. I, I might add, uh, I don't think I mentioned this in the article. Uh, <laughs> the you know Frank Church uh, Church went on on Meet the Press and pointed out publicly he was generally pretty pretty mum on these things while the investigation was going on. But he said, I, I can only tell you that if these techniques that the National Security Agency has developed are are ever turned inward on the American people, we will confront and cross an abyss from which there is no return. At the very moment that Frank Church said those words, NSA was eavesdropping on Church's own international phone calls. He didn't know about it, of course, uh, but so the, the the NSA was one of the one of the entities that they looked at, and the army itself was engaged in domestic surveillance, spying on political officials, anti-war, civil rights activists, church leaders, sharing the information that it gathered with the FBI, the CIA, and local police departments. So I I just emphasize one thing: these were not, you know, rare one-off pranks of lone uh, cowboys. These were painstakingly planned, deliberate operations in which this country's most trusted security services over a period of many years tried to alter the people's form of government without the people's knowledge or consent. This was a violation of the public trust, and anybody who looks to them today to check the elected representatives of the people really needs to familiarize himself or herself with history, because all this is online. If you, if you Google church committee, you can find the entire report, the hearings, and the committee's evaluation and assessment. It's all there online. No one who is familiar with that would want to substitute an illiberal set of security managers for an illiberal elected representative of the people in the presidency. That's a bad bet. Why? Because you can always change the presidency. You can change the person who sits in the White House. If you replace that person with unelected security managers, the risk is that that is irreversible. How do you see this tension between uh, national security uh, elites and populists and national security now that Biden is president? 
Well, uh, that's a big question, and I, I want to back up just a bit and uh, kind of compare and contrast Biden and Trump. I think both of them are transitional figures. I don't think there's any dominant myth system, any prevailing myth system in the United States today. I think there are two myth systems represented by each of these contrasting individuals that are competing for dominance. And to be overly simplistic about it, and I acknowledge that at the outset, you could say that one of those myth systems is represented by the value of liberty, and the other myth system is represented by the value of equality. These are the organizing principles behind uh, the, the, the two competing myth systems. So look at, look at these two myth systems for a quick second. Liberty. Liberty has been the traditional myth system of the American Republic. You don't have to go far in looking at the coinage and imagery of the early Republic to see that. I mean, it's, 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 it's utterly impossible to imagine Patrick Henry giving a speech, give me equality or give me death. No, the, the whole, the whole structure of government was centered on the value of liberty. And today, this, this, um, segment of the population that is energized by the value of liberty and the importance of liberty is suspicious of technocracy. They're suspicious of the security directorate. Um, they're suspicious of elites. And another way to look at it is that they, the, the, the liberty constituency, are committed to something that Isaiah Berlin called negative freedom. They want freedom from. They don't want the government to interfere with what they want to do. Contrast this group with, with those committed to equality. Those who, who exalt equality are much more comfortable with the notion of technocracy. Um, they, they, they see political disputes primarily as, as um, public policy questions to which there's one correct answer that the technocracy can produce. Um, it, 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 it dovetails with, with the social just, justice movement that tends to believe there's really only one kind of justice, one single unitary uh, form of justice. And these, this, this group that, 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 that lines up behind the notion of equality, in contrast to the, the Berlin um, people who, who um, are committed to negative freedom, 
they're committed to positive freedom, equality and positive liberty go hand in hand. They want the state to enable them to do things, to, um, to be recognized by the state as somebody, to be, to be shored up by the state, uh, even if that overrides the negative freedom of others to be free from state interference. So these are the two, these are the two myth systems that are currently, I think, competing for dominance within the American system. Right now, of course, egalitarians are ascendant. Uh, <laughs> Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, announced when he was appointed that his job as national security advisor would be to combat inequality in all its forms. Uh, when you define security that broadly, obviously, the writ of the security managers is very broad, and they've taken on a very broad role in the Biden administration and identify themselves largely with the social justice movement. But it's not simply the administration and the security managers that have fallen under the sway of the new egalitarian movement. Many of the main institutions, I'd say virtually all the main institutions in our society, the entertainment industry, corporate media, the social media, and academia, um, all pretty much line up on the side of equality as opposed to liberty. The ironic thing, of course, is that that's not true with the general population at large. Probably no more than half the population would select equality over liberty if that were the choice. And it's not always the choice. I, as I say at the outset, I, I don't mean to be simplistic about it. In many situations, liberty and equality go hand in hand. But the egalitarians have been, have been more active, even though they're probably no more numerous than the libertarians. And they've succeeded, therefore, in capturing these institutions, whereas libertarians who, who for the most part, I don't mean classic libertarians, I mean those, those who identify with the, the liberty ideal, um, just want to be left alone. So they are by, by nature probably uh, less, less activist. So that's where we are today, and I, I don't have any sense of how this conflict is going to play out. I think it's likely to depend upon the unfolding of events that have yet transpired. You spoke earlier about the imperative of civic virtue, or perhaps the, the dearth of it in our body politic. Um, that in large part seems to me to be the thing that might tip the balance in one direction or the other. Um, do you have anything to say about how to um, how to get an electorate, how to cultivate an electorate that is more informed and has the same understandings of their role in the system uh, as you do? I don't have any easy 
answer to that question, that's in many ways the $64 million question. First, we're, we're confronting a great problem. In the past, we had institutions to rely upon to help us through a crisis like this. The institutions, however, have been so discredited that they're not available to us to the extent that they have been in the past. So we're 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 in a, a strange situation of having to ask the institutions to exercise power and expend energy for the purpose of restoring their power and energy, but they don't have it to to give. That's the dilemma. Ultimately, your your question comes back to how do we resuscitate these institutions, the sorts of institutions that I just alluded to. At the more individual level, though, and this is what I tell students, if you if you want to if you want to take the need for for civic virtue seriously, meaning the, the need to inform yourself. It takes a lot more work today than it did before. Now, you might think that's not true. It's easy. Look at the internet. Look at all of these multiple sources of information. It's a, it's a gold mine. Well, the problem is you can't look to any single source of information, knowing that it will be objective, unbiased, comprehensive. And you look today at the press's treatment of the Hunter Biden story when it initially broke, how they sat on that story. And you will understand why people today don't trust the press. They don't believe they're getting the whole story. They see advocacy, journalism. Every time they open their computer screens, reporters are not giving them the facts. They're telling them what they should think. Those are two very different things. So, as I say, what I tell students is you can't look to only one source. You've got to curate your own news sources. Look at sources on both the left and the right, and inform yourself, come to your own independent judgment, and think critically. Think critically. Don't assume that information is correct because it comes from a credible source. Double check it. Trust but verify. Michael Glennon, thank you very much for speaking with us today. John, thank you for having me. 